Uh, We're embarking this morning on a summer series that looks at a variety of different people who had encounters with Jesus in the gospel. So we're going to look at different uh, conversations, different individuals uh, that came across Jesus's path. What we like to do in the summer at Green Tree is stick with a theme of some kind, but not a theme that has to build one Sunday from the next. So if you're here today and then you happen to be gone the next couple Sundays and then you're back in July, you can pick up right where you left off and you won't feel like you've, you've missed out uh, on anything that, that has built up to that particular Sunday. But uh, the folks that Jesus met, if you've read the Gospels before, uh, or if you were to read them for the first time, what you would find is that Jesus met a lot of different people during his earthly ministry. He spent a lot of time with very wealthy, very rich people. He also spent a lot of time with the, some of the poorest of the poor. Uh, Jesus met with folks who claimed to be believers, and he spent time with avowed skeptics. Uh, He indulged those who felt they were very, very religious, uh, as well as encountering those who would consider themselves secular, both Jew and Gentile. If there had been in those days Blues and Bruins fans, I'm sure he would have spent time with both of them as well. So a lot of different people, a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different circumstances and situations, but all having one thing in common, not only with themselves, but with you and me today. They were all people in need of grace. This morning, we're going to kick off our summer series looking at the Zebedee boys, two brothers, James and John. Uh, who we meet several times in the Gospels, uh, sometimes in complimentary ways, other times uh, not so much. Typically what I do is I read the Scripture passage and then we walk through it, but this morning we're going to look at four different passages. We're going to have one point in each passage, so we're simply going to read them as we go. So before we jump into the text this morning, let's spend a moment asking God to teach us and to speak to us today. Let's pray. Father, we pray for our time now as we study your word, that you would help us to worship you with our minds, with our intellect, with our reason, uh, with our thinking. You have created us for a relationship with you, and you've created us to have the ability to discern and understand what that means. And by the power of your Holy Spirit and your word, you bring us new life, and you enable us to follow and to trust in you. So, Lord, we pray that you would teach us this morning, that, that our, our minds and our souls would be nourished uh, from spending time in your word. Lord, not hearing what, what a particular person has to say. We hear people's opinions all week long. We don't need my opinions, Lord. What we need is your eternal truth uh, to dig deeply into the hearts and minds of every one of us that is gathered here together this morning. So, Lord, we pray that you would teach us. Father, forgive my sin. Please don't let me be a hindrance to your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So sermon in a sentence this morning is pretty straightforward. Before we can share God's grace with others, Jesus' disciples must embrace our need for it. So if I were to ask you this morning, how much do you need the grace of God in your life? How would you answer that question? Some of us might say, I don't really know what the grace of God is, so I don't know how to answer the question. I'm not sure whether I need it or I don't need it. Others of us might say, you know, I probably need it sometimes. I mess up occasionally. I I don't quite get it right. Uh, And so it would be at those moments where I'd hope that God would be kind to me. And others of us may understand 
from Scripture that we have a deep need for the grace of God that is an eternal, everlasting need that only He can fill. But we also uh, need to understand that it's not ours to hold on to, it's ours to share with others. So the four different passages this morning uh, that observe the life of James and John will hopefully help kind of bring that to bear on your life and my life this morning. First passage is Mark chapter 1, uh, verses 19 and 20. It's speaking about Jesus in this text. He's just called Peter, the fisherman, to come and to follow him. And now he's gone down the beach a little ways, and he's come, or down the dock a little ways, and he's come to some more fishermen. And this is where we pick up the passage. And going on a little further, he, that being Jesus, saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. The first observation about the Zebedee brothers is that they were the most common of men. They didn't live in a palace. They weren't extraordinarily wealthy. They were blue-collar workers who would go out on the lake day in and day out in their area, and they would fish in order to bring those fish in and sell them at market, and by doing so, uh, help run a very small family business. These were folks uh, that we call ordinary folks with whom we could rub elbows every day. They were more involved in labor uh, than they were in management. They certainly weren't in senior management. They were, they were folks, as we said, who got their hands dirty every day making a living. The reason I say this is because sometimes we think that God picks the brightest or God picks the best or because uh, my circumstances are somewhat simple or somewhat uh, less impressive than others, then perhaps I don't have a very big role to play in the kingdom of God. Uh, I read a book shortly uh, after InBev bought Anheuser-Busch about the history of the brewery. And one of the things that I had heard before in passing, but had never really uh, read about or, or understood, was that as the Bush children were born, each new generation, the children would be taken to the brewery when they were eight or nine or ten years old, and they'd be handed a broom, and they'd be given a place to start sweeping. And they basically learned the brewing business from the most menial job all the way to the top. But eventually they got to the top. Eventually they were the corporate executives at Anheuser-Busch. James and John kind of started with the broom in their hands, but never got a whole lot further than that. They're ordinary folks. And yet even these ordinary folks had some intuition that there was something different about Jesus. Jesus comes along and he sees them. He's just, uh, he's just called Peter they're in the boat, they're mending nets. So again, they're, they're part of labor, they're not part of management. They're, they're right there working with dad and with uh, a few of the, the folks they're able to hire uh, as maybe part-time or full-time fishermen with them. And Jesus comes along and says, why don't you come with me? And they left their father and immediately they go to follow Jesus. They saw something in Jesus. Every disciple I've ever spoken to whether rich or, or not so rich, whether uh, influential or not so influential. Every disciple I've ever met has said the same thing. There's something different about Jesus. There's something different about the call of Jesus. And even the most common of people 
can understand this. I love the fact that when Jesus introduces us, or the gospel introduces us to Jesus bringing his first group of folks around him. He doesn't start with the most powerful. He doesn't start with the most influential. He starts with the most common of men. Secondly, we're going to look at Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 19, uh, for our next uh, interaction with James and John. Uh, And this is again about Jesus. And Jesus went up to the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him and he appointed 12 so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12 and then they begin to list the 12. Peter or Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee and John the brother of James to whom he gave the name sons of thunder couple of thoughts here. The first is this. These followers of Jesus, James and John, along with the other 12, or the other 10, excuse me, are identified by Jesus as those whom he wants to come and be with him. They were chosen or they were identified by another. They didn't necessarily volunteer for the task. They didn't put themselves forward, but Jesus reached out and said to them, I have an assignment for you. I have a relationship with you I want to build. You simply need to be available to me. It was the Lord Jesus who determined that they were his, that they were to be with him. It's the first thing about our salvation that I think is is so beautiful. I mean, there's so many beautiful things about our salvation, but that Jesus wants to build a relationship with us, that Jesus wants to restore that which has been broken by our sin relationally. And Jesus invites James and John to be in a relationship with him. But also that they are empowered by another because notice what uh, he wants. He wants them to be with him so that he can rub off on them, but that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. Again, these are uneducated fishermen. These are common men. They haven't been trained to be preachers. They don't have any power within themselves to be healers, to cast out the demonic. And yet Jesus is going to not only call them, but he's going to empower them. And again, I think that's important and encouraging for you and for me to know this morning that if Jesus calls us, that it's his calling in our life, it's unapologetic. He's, he's thrilled to have us and he's going to be, give us the power we need in order to be witnesses for him in order to share the gospel as he's called us to be partners in his ministry, which we'll see a little bit more closely in a moment or two. Now, if you look at these two men, just the little bit we know about them, they're fishermen, they're common guys, they're uneducated, we probably wouldn't say they were the obvious choice for the job. We probably, if we were the ones picking, probably wouldn't have picked them because the best you could say for them here is that they're ill-tempered guys. Look at the, the name that they're given. And by the way, if you didn't think there was going to be a hockey picture on the screen today, then you haven't been at Green Tree very long. This might be your very first time at Green Tree. If it is, I kind of like hockey a little bit. Um, I think that's why I've got the stiffness in my back. It's, it's tension. It's hockey tension. Um, but these guys are called, what, the Sons of Thunder. That's the nickname that Jesus gives these two guys, which means they're going to punch first, then they're going to punch second, then they're going to punch third, and then eventually they might ask a question. They're, they're going to get in there and mix it up. They're not only kind of common guys who live on the water and work hard on the water. They're, you know, they're probably pretty ripped from the, the hard work they do, but they don't mind going at it. 
They don't mind going toe-to-toe with somebody else. So I tried to think, well, who could, I, who could I get that would be that close? And I thought of Tony Twist, the guy who played for the Blues in the early to mid-'90s. He played for him for about five years. And in five years, he scored 10 goals <laughs> in, uh, in 84, 82 games a year, 84 games a year times five years. 400 and something games. He scored 10 goals and had 11 assists and over 1,100 penalty minutes. You didn't want to mess with Tony Twist. He took care of all the good players. That was his job. Tony Twist is a modern day son of thunder. And these two guys who, who wouldn't be your obvious choice, James and John, you wouldn't look at a group and go, those guys are going to be key apostles for the Lord Jesus. You would say, those guys look like trouble and I'm not going to turn my back on them. And yet Jesus chooses them, and he empowers them to become ambassadors for him. Whatever your background is, whatever your temperament might be, you might be a son or daughter of thunder. You might have a checkered past of which you're, you're not all, all that proud. You might be the type of person that says, there's a lot of other people that ought to be in the line ahead of me serving Jesus, and yet Jesus chooses you. He calls you not because of who you are or what you've done, or what your potential may be, he calls you out of love and out of grace and out of mercy. Therefore, our confidence should be not in ourselves, but should be in the Lord Jesus. But the third text shows us that, that the sons of thunder uh, got their confidence a little bit out of whack. They, they had it focused on the wrong things. In Mark chapter 10, verse 35, it says this, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to, uh, again, the hymn is Jesus, and said, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. Now, if you're a mom or a dad, you see that question, a red flag goes up. There's no way the question that's coming next is going to be a good question, because it's probably against another sibling, or it's got something to do with money that they lost and you need to replace. But the, the notion of a child saying, hey, just say yes to whatever I say to you next. The wise parent doesn't just jump right in and say, sure, son, sure, daughter, what would you like? They ask a, a follow-up question that Jesus is a lot smarter than us, and he does. And so he said to them, and what is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant to us to sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. The conversation goes on. Jesus says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right or my left, it's not for me to grant, but for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant with James and John. So basically, James and John have this inappropriate confidence in themselves. And their request right up front hints to that arrogance. Lord, do for us whatever we ask. Well, what is it you want? We want to sit at your right and your left. What James and John are saying is, Lord, look, we've examined all 12 of us, and we have come to the conclusion that we're the two best you, you have going for you. So whenever you come into the kingdom, have you know John on one side, James on the other, and you will be set for life. Notice where their focus isn't. Their focus isn't on their own brokenness. Their focus isn't on their own sin. Their focus isn't on their own shortcomings. And their focus isn't on the other 10 that may be as much or more qualified than they. Their focus is on themselves. And there's a hint here of a, of a, of a, hum, a human arrogance that is unhealthy. But if it's just a hint, their response uh, to Jesus' question shows full-blown their arrogance. Because Jesus asked them a question, are you able to drink of my cup? 
Are you able to be baptized with this baptism? To what is Jesus referring to? He's referring to the cross. He's referring to the, to the torture and the humiliation and the death that he's going to experience. He's going to be persecuted. He's going to be tormented for his faith. He's going to suffer at the hands of sinners and be persecuted. He's going to go through tribulation that is, is almost incomprehensible when you look at the cross. And they just blithely say, of course, we can do it. Showing that their, their arrogance, <laughs> showing that their confidence is absolutely in the wrong place. Their response says, Jesus, you sure are lucky to have us. You should be so thankful that we're on your team. Even though within a little bit of time, they will both run away from Jesus, pretend like they were never his friends. They'll hide and try to save their own skins, and only John will observe the cross from a distance. This inappropriate confidence is alarming because it speaks to our hearts that are in the wrong place, thinking that the power resides in us to be faithful disciples of Jesus. But Jesus gives them a sober reminder. He says to both of them, you will drink from this cup. You will be baptized with my baptism. Jesus is talking about the cost to follow him. James would be the first to pay that cost. In Acts chapter 12, we read this. And about that time, which is just perhaps a handful of years after Jesus has ascended into heaven, maybe not even that far down the road, maybe just a year or so. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that he was displeased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. James would pay the ultimate price for his faith. And I'm sure on that moment when James spoke of his confidence, he had no earthly idea what that meant. Brothers and sisters, we ought to be warned carefully by this text this morning that to have any confidence in our own strength and our own wisdom is confidence misappropriated. His little brother John, while he survived early tribulation of the church, ended up in exile. You can read about this in Revelation, the first chapter. John says, as he writes to the church, uh, the seven churches, I, John, your brother and partner in tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, this is not a very accurate picture, but it's the best one that I could find as I was, as I was looking around this week, because that, that John looks a little bit older, but he's on... He's got a nice little chair there, and he's writing along. He's got parchment. He sent a little note. He's got some chains on his feet, but he doesn't look too uncomfortable. Patmos, in John's day, was an island that was uh, a penal colony. And the Romans took their, their, a lot of their criminals, and they put them on Patmos. But not to sit around. Patmos was an island that was mined for its minerals. So John ends up on Patmos probably by about the time he's 87, 88 years old. He's ancient, and he is working in the mines. It probably eventually cost him his life. So he's not kind of just sitting by, having life easy, sitting on the beach at Patmos. He is suffering for being a follower of Jesus. I'm quite certain that before either of these brothers died, they both understood that their confidence had to be in the Lord Jesus and not in themselves. And then one other observation about, about James and John early on in Luke chapter 9, Jesus is getting ready to, to go to Jerusalem to suffer and to die. And Luke uh, speaks to that. 
says, when the days drew near for uh, him, Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. So, you know, we're going to spend the night here. Let's go get some dinner ready, find a place for us to stay. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. So it sounds like they wanted him to stick around and he wasn't going to stick around. It kind of made everybody grumpy and mad and, and complained. Well, when James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And he turned to rebuke them, and they went on to another village. James and John, probably along with the other disciples, had the uncanny ability to miss the entire point. What's the point of Jesus setting his face to go to Jerusalem? It's for your salvation and for mine. But these sons of thunder are not picking up on the plan by any stretch of the imagination. Their reaction when people reject Jesus is to want to call down fire from heaven and destroy Have you ever shared the gospel with someone only to have them laugh at you? Have you ever talked to someone very genuinely about your faith only to have them say, well, that might be good for you, but it makes no sense for me? Have you ever been around people who reject Christ and do so in a glib manner? Uh, I I don't know why I was, uh, I was, it might've been in between periods or something, but I was surfing on TV the other night and the original MASH movie was on. Now, now you're going back to the 70s, uh, not with Alan Alda. I'm not talking about the TV show. I'm talking about the original movie with Donald Sutherland. And there's a scene in the movie where uh, Frank Burns is, is, is kind of a straight-laced kind of colonel guy who's one of the doctors, and he's praying for his tent mates. And as he's praying for them, they're mocking him. And then as they mock him, they start to sing this song, Onward Christian Soldiers. And the people outside the tent hear the song, and all the doctors and the nurses and the orderlies all join in in this robust singing of the first verse of Onward Christian Soldiers. And I I don't know that I ever even noticed that scene in the movie uh, when when I've seen it. I've seen it once or twice before. It didn't really sink in what was going on there. They were making a mockery of the gospel. And they were doing so with all their hearts. And I got to tell you that it might, the blues might have been losing at that point, and my, this might be why, but I was angry. <laughs> I was upset. I, I was mad that I actually liked uh, that movie, that I, that I found some joy in them because they were making fun of my Lord, and I wanted to go get them. I, I, wanted, to, I wanted somebody to pay for that. I understand James and John's reaction. We may look at this and go, how, how could they possibly, after spending three years with Jesus, want to call down you know, fire and destroy people? Well, th- because they're common folks like you and me. And when people reject us, it hurts. And when people mock us, it gets our dander up. And we wanted to do something about it. But what ends up happening when we think that way is we're no longer a partner for the gospel. We become a hindrance to the gospel. Because if we're going to drink from Jesus' cup, if we're going to experience that baptism, it means to suffer for Christ in a gracious and compassionate way that allow others to perhaps see the grace of God and to understand that their rejection of Christ is misspent or misappropriated. Do we look like people who really know Jesus? Do you and I, if we claim to be disciples of Jesus, do we understand that there doesn't need to be anything extraordinary about us? That it's it's not about being the best or the brightest, but it's about being humble followers of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Is there humility in your life and in my life that's actually attractive to the world around us? 
that says maybe there's something different about this Christianity? Do we look like people who know Jesus? Do we understand that we're recipients of grace and therefore stewards of the same? I think one of the things that was lost on James and John early, I know they got it later, but it was lost on them that they needed the grace of God, that that they needed God's forgiveness and God's mercy, and therefore as they received it, they needed to steward it with others. Are we folks who look like we know Jesus? If we are, then we're seeking to live in his power and in his equipping daily. We spend time studying God's word. We spend time in prayer, not so that we can check, our devo- check off our devotional list box, but because we know that we have no confidence in our own flesh, but only in the power of Jesus through the spirit of God and through the word of God. Are we people that look like we know Jesus? If we are, then we understand that we are partners with him in his mission of redemption, and there's nothing more important in life than that. Everybody we look at this summer, including James and John, are people who shared God's grace with others, but not until they understood and embraced their own need for it. May we be a people who look like we genuinely know Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the sons of thunder. Uh, Lord, we thank you for James and for John, for the work you did in their lives. Father, there's something ab- about them that is attractive to us. They were hardworking guys. They were, they were guys, guys. They, they didn't mind mixing it up if, if, if need be. Uh, you know, we look at some of these traits. We look at how, how they wanted to protect Jesus from these unbelievers and call down fire from heaven. And, and part of us, if, if we're honest, at least for some of us like me, say, yeah, that's right, boy, go get him. Father, help us to understand that the real power and the real strength lie in your grace through the Lord Jesus. That what's really most important is for us to understand our deep need for your grace and to embrace the grace that you give us through the Lord Jesus and then to share that with others. Father, may we have that power. May we have that strength. May we have confidence in you as we go from this place to serve you and to share your word with others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.